From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Father Wade is gallivanting again, so we're doing a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, a very special, never-before-heard edition of uh, EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we will not be taking your phone calls today. But if you would like to be part of a future email program, you can send us an email at openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host as he is every Tuesday in one form or another, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. Good to be with you today and, and the rest of the team there. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. So, um, husbands and wives. Yes, amen. I have one of those. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she would she would be proud that you just said that also. <laughs> and as we yeah, and as we as we as we efforted all morning to get her to the airport for her big her big week of uh, women of grace activities at the Malvern Retreat House that they do every summer and they're doing for the first time in three years because of the COVID pandemic. I'll just tell you that I am absolutely, positively not giving up on her today. There you go. There you... <laughs> wise man, wise man. I want to talk today, Jack, about uh, husbands and wives who were greatly other-centered in their marriage. Uh, they, they had a view to the other, uh, not only to their other spouse, but to others in general. You know, Holy Mother Church in her rich 2,000-year history claims numerous husbands and wives among the ranks of saints and blesseds and venerables and servants of God who were known to be very other-centered throughout their married life, and, and so they give us great examples, and I want to share a few of those couples right now. There's St. Louis and St. Zélie Martin, the parents of St. Therese, uh, one of the great female doctors of the Church. Uh, Louis and Zélie Martin were, were known for their regular practice of the 14 works of mercy, seven for the body, called the corporal works of mercy, seven for the soul, called the spiritual works of mercy. They were canonized together during the October 2015 International Bishop Synod on Marriage and the Family. How beautiful is that? And get this, their feast day is July 12th, their wedding anniversary. How beautiful is that? <laughs> then there's uh, Blessed Luigi and Maria Beltrame Quattrocchi, an Italian couple who provided a hiding place for Jews in their Roman apartment during the Nazi occupation of Rome during World War II. According to Pope John Paul II, they lived, quote, an ordinary life in an extraordinary way, end quote. Their feast day is November 25th, their wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. There's also St. Gianna Mola and her husband Pietro, who, uh, St. Gianna herself, uh, refused an abortion of their last child with Pietro fully in agreement with her on this uh, when it was recommended by doctors because of the advanced stage of Gianna's uterine tumor. Early in what would be her final pregnancy, doctors discovered that Gianna had both a child and a tumor in her uterus. She allowed the surgeons to remove the tumor, but not to perform the complete hysterectomy that they recommended because it would have killed the child. Seven months later, on April 21st, 1962, little Gianna Emanuela Mola was born and named after her mother. But post-operative complications resulted in Gianna developing septic peritonitis. 
suffering from severe pain and with repeated exclamations of Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you from her lips. Gianna, the mother, died on April 28, 1962, just one week after giving birth to her little baby girl. She left behind her husband, Pietro, and four young children total. But get this, Jack. Some 30-plus years later, that same child, her last one, their daughter, Gianna Emanuela, was present at both her mother's beatification in 1994 and canonization in 2004. These ceremonies were both held at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was also the first time in the 2,000-year history of the church that a husband still living witnessed his wife's beatification and canonization. Then there's the servant of God, Emperor Charles of Austria, and his wife, Zita, who were both reluctant to have their country enter into the phrase of World War I and tried zealously to promote peace. There's St. Elizabeth of Hungary and her husband, Louis, who were staunch advocates of the poor, the sick, and the disenfranchised throughout their kingdom, whom they provided for out of their own personal resources. And then there's St. Thomas More and his second wife, Lady Alice, Entirely devoted to their family and friends, their home was a place sought out for visitation by all ranks and classes of people because it was so centered on faith and joy. Thomas More is a wonderful example of a faithful and devoted husband, father, and layman, a lawyer and diplomat by trade, he was the Lord Chancellor of England, who knew full well that his ticket to heaven was his faithfulness to daily duty in the areas of family, home life, work, and faith. Before he was beheaded by order of King Henry VIII for refusing to accept as valid the king's unnatural second marriage, Thomas said, I die the king's faithful servant, but God's first. And by the way, I'd like to say this too, Jack. Uh, I said this at, at your wedding with Johnette uh, in Florida a few years back. I said this during the homily. A perfect marriage is an imperfect husband and an imperfect wife who absolutely refuse to give up on one another. That's holiness, huh? And, and these husbands and wives who were other-centered, I don't mean to make their lives sound Pollyannish, that they didn't have problems within their marriage or, or even became, uh, at, at times, maybe disgruntled with one another, but they always, always rose above it. Why? Because a perfect marriage is an imperfect husband and an imperfect wife who absolutely refuse to give up on another. I came across a great quote from Mother Angelica in her so-called little book. It's on page 55. Mother Angelica says this, Do you want to know what Christianity is? I'll tell you. It's blood and guts. How about that? And we see that in the lives of these great married saints, blessed servants of gods, and venerables. Do you want to know what Christianity is? Mother Angelica says, I will tell you. It's blood and guts. She continues, Christianity is someone that you're in love with, Jesus the Lord. And when you're in love with Jesus, you're going to love your wife more, you're going to love your husband more, you're going to love your children more, because only the love of Jesus can make you love deeply and love truly. Uh, there's a great quote by Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, and the family, and he says this, uh, because it, it, it springboards, if you will, from the lives of these great married couples that I just shared with, with everyone. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI says this, The family is the privileged setting where every person learns to give and receive love. The family is an intermediate institution between individuals and society. And nothing can completely take its place. The family is a necessary good for peoples, an indispensable foundation for society, and a great and lifelong treasure for married couples. 
It is a unique good for children who are meant to be the fruit of the covenant love of the total and generous self-giving of their parents. The family is also a school that enables men and women to grow to the full measure of their humanity, meaning becoming the best version of yourself in your own humanity by virtue of God's grace. And Pope Benedict continues, he says with a little prayer, O God, who in the holy family of Nazareth, in Mary, Jesus, and Joseph, left us a perfect model of family life, lived in faith and obedience to your will, with activity and contemplation. Help us to be examples of faith and love for your commandments. And St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she says this very beautifully. She says, spread love everywhere you go. First of all, in your own house, your own family home. Give love to your children, to your wife. Give love to your husband. Give love to the next door neighbor. Let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier because of the love you've shown them. Be the living expression of God's kindness Kindness in your face, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile, and kindness in your warm greeting. And we see this uh, ideal given to us by Mother Teresa of Calcutta, now saint, and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI on marriage and family, lived and expressed in the lives of these particular couples that I've shared. And I think it's an important reminder, especially during ordinary time, Jack, where we're called to make our ordinary lives extraordinary precisely because of the graces we've received during Lent and Easter and Eastertide, during Advent and Christmas and Christmastide. You know, Holy Mother Church gives us two ordinary times throughout the entire liturgical year. We're in one of them right now. Uh, Let's make our ordinary lives extraordinary, and I've focused just on marrieds for this springboard topic, but really this is a message meant for everyone. And I think it's safe to say that these married couples uh, got the memo, huh? They got the memo, and, you know, they, were, they strive to become holy right where they were, you know, even during world wars, right? Uh, even during times of peace, right? Uh, even uh, seeking out different teachings of the church, like uh, Therese's parents, uh, Louis and Zélie Martin, they, they had a great, great love for the 14 works of mercy, and uh, they say that Zaylee used to have a, a list of all 14, and whenever she and her husband would fulfill them that particular month, uh, she would check them off the list, the 14 works of mercy, the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy. So there you have it, married couples who were very, very other-centered. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. So we're not taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future program, open line at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. We're going to empty out the mailbag and... uh, uh, Nancy was watching on a recent episode, Father, on Facebook, and she has a question related to marriage. And she says, how do you receive communion if you are married to a divorcee? 
We have been married for 45 years. His ex-wife is 76 years old and mentally confused, and her current whereabouts are unknown. I have confessed this in confession. I heard there is nothing the Lord won't forgive. What about me? Well, great question, and a very sincere question, you know. Um, if, if you're living chastely as though brother and sister, and as we get older, that should be something more uh, easily to attain for, for some, maybe not for others, true enough. Um, but as we're, we're nearing the end of our life, approaching the 80s, uh, 90s, we're starting to think about the reality of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, and we want to live accordingly to God's moral law, which is tied to the natural law, and natural marriage is part of the natural law. Uh, natural marriage is part of the moral law, as the Church teaches it. So, you know, as long as you're living as though brother and sister, that is, with no conjugal relations, you can receive the two sacraments that are the only two sacraments out of the seven that we can receive over and over and over again to sustain us precisely in our daily walk in life, and that is regular confession and regular Eucharist. So uh, that would be my answer. You know, you say, uh, how do you receive communion if you are married to a divorcee? We have been married for 45 years. Uh, he, again, as Jack just read, his, his ex-wife is 76, mentally confused, her current whereabouts are unknown, meaning, I think, that you're trying to tell us that there's no way to pursue an annulment uh, with that so you believe without knowing where the other uh, former spouse is, the first spouse that's still presumed to be validly, licitly married to your spouse. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, you can still present your case for the annulment to the tribunal, which knows the laws of the Church canonically, and let them guide you as to what the options are if the presumed still living original spouse cannot be located. Let let the, the, the canon lawyers of your diocese guide you in that particular circumstance. I would still go ahead and pursue the annulment process and learn more about it and see where it takes. But in the meantime, uh, you can receive regular confession and regular uh, Eucharist, provided uh, you are living chastely with this second spouse. So great, great question, and, and by the way, a great witness question to so many listeners, I'm sure. Thank you so much. We received an email from John, and he says, Father Wade, why doesn't the Church have a blessing for single Catholics? Jesus was single, other, uh, other received the sacrament of holy orders or marriage. Great. Well, while singlehood is a legitimate state in life, uh, it is not a sacrament like holy orders or marriage is, so you're not going to see a sacramental, quote-unquote, a sacramental ritual for singlehood, because it's simply not a sacrament. Now, that said, there is consecrated single life living under a rule. There's also consecrated single life living in the world, uh, done so through private vows by a local bishop that you live under, and or by virtue of a community that you are a member of, okay? So Milius Yesu, for example, is a community that has singles. Um, the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity has consecrated singles. Opus Dei has consecrated singles. And within uh, these particular communities, uh, whether they're personal prelatures like Opus Dei, whether they're uh, diocesan right communities, whatever level they are canonically in canon law, uh, to becoming a full-fledged religious order, or staying where they are in that particular category. Um, 
if they offer singles uh, to to be under their rule of that particular community, then there would be prayers uh, of investiture. There would be prayers of institution for that particular layman or laywoman to be a, a, a full-fledged member of that community after a series of, of years of proper formation from that same community. But then there's also just private vows of living a chaste life in the world that is permissible under a bishop. Now, usually we see this with the women who can become anchorites for a diocese, which is an ancient order, um, but not a sacrament, but an ancient order within the church. Also, consecrated virgins who pray for the diocese, who make their vows to the bishop. Um, so th th these things are possible. Uh, also, understand that if you look online under different Catholic websites that feature singlehood as a legitimate state in life, because not everybody is marriageable, not everybody is religious lifeable, not everybody is singlehoodable. You know, I think of a good friend of mine who's a husband and father with 10 children, I think it's safe to say that he was not meant to be single, right? So great Catholic husband and father. So he's non-singlehoodable. Uh, but some of us are non I'm non-marriageable as a consecrated religious with the Fathers of Mercy. Some are non-religious lifeable, right? So this is what I mean when I say that that singlehood uh, is, is a viable state. John Paul II did a lot in his 26 years as Pope to bring this truth to the fore, and these are the different ways that singlehood can be lived out to the Church that I've already talked about. But if you go to some of these different websites you're gonna, that are Catholic, you're going to find such things as no, a novena for single Catholics, Litany of Saints for single people, where all the saints mentioned the litany were all known to be single men and women. How beautiful is that? There's a saint and novena for singles. There's a there's prayer of a whole variety of prayers for single people. So so this is the vision of the church for singlehood. We're all called to become holy where we are. So whether you're single because you have not yet discerned your vocation in state and life, whether marriage or consecrated life or, or single in the world or under an institute, whether you're single because you have made that decision that you want, you feel called that, that you're going to remain single in the world, that that's what God's calling you to do, now you just have to discern whether it's under private vows or whether it's through an institute— uh, regardless of why you're single, whether it's because you're already settled there with peace of mind or you're not settled there, maybe you still feel called to, to be married but just haven't found that prospective spouse yet through chaste courtship, the fact is there's a place for you as a single person living a holy life because we're all called to become holy where we are in our particular circumstance of life. So great question for singles. Thank you so much for asking it. Again, a very special mailbag edition today of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. So we're not taking your phone calls today. Charles writes in, St. Faustina describes a vision of the end times with a warning in the sky in the form of a cross three days of darkness, and an examination of conscience where everyone will see their sins. Has the Church verified any of this? No, because it's not part of Church doctrine. And remember also the Church teaches that the saints' writings, although they're canonized saints, are not necessarily immune from error. Uh, the Church, when she canonizes a saint, it's based on the heroic virtue lived by that saint. It's not based only on their writings. 
So the Church per se, Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, does not teach anything doctrinally about a three days darkness, wherein there will be the person in this question, Jack, used the phrase, I believe you just said, uh, an examination of conscience. I think they mean an illumination of conscience. The Church does not teach anything either about an illumination of conscience. Now, you do have some Marian apparitions uh, that are not yet approved that talk about the so-called illumination of conscience, um, that talk about the three days darkness. I believe some of Padre Pio's minor writings talked about the possibility of a three days darkness, but the Church does not teach that, uh, nor about the illumination of conscience. In fact, I have found talking to people at parish missions who are still lukewarm in their faith, I think the so-called illumination of, of conscience uh, teaching from some of these unapproved Marian apparition sites and some of these unapproved writings of the saints, uh, or, or of holy persons' writings, uh, not yet canonized, uh, is dangerous, because the person takes on this attitude. Well, yeah, I'm still living a life of sin, but uh, there's still time for me to convert uh, because the illumination of conscience hasn't happened yet, where I see myself as I really am in God's own divine mind, in God's eyes. But the day the illumination of conscience happens to me, that's the day I'll convert. Well, that's de- that attitude is delaying your conversion. That attitude is deferring your conversion. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of the Lord, 2 Corinthians tells us very beautifully. Uh, We shouldn't defer our conversion. We shouldn't delay our conversion. So that's why I find this so-called illumination of conscience teaching, which isn't an official teaching, I'm just using that word kind of colloquially, this so-called illumination of conscience teaching by these different unapproved apparition sites or these unapproved individual writings by by certain so-called seers, or visionaries, is not healthy, and the Church does not teach it. Also, regarding the three days of darkness, one time I had a a woman approach me at the end of the parish mission when I was thanking the people for coming to the mission that particular night, and she said, "Um, Father, I have just one question for you. I really enjoyed your conference tonight on the four last things, but I have one question for you. And and I said, what's that, ma'am? She says, what if the oranges aren't blessed? And I said, excuse me? (laughs) She said, what if the oranges aren't blessed? And I said, madam, please forgive me, I have no idea what you're talking about. She said, the basket of oranges that we're supposed to have just outside our front door when the three days of darkness takes place. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about because the church doesn't teach about a three days darkness. She's, oh, well, according to so-and-so, and and she gave the the site of the unapproved Marian apparition, we're supposed to have a basket of blessed oranges outside our door during the three days of darkness because it's a fruit of the Lord and it'll ward off evil from entering entering our house by way of the threshold of the front door. Well, this is superstition. This is why our Protestant brothers and sisters think we're crazy as Catholics, all right? This is unapproved doctrine. This is unapproved teaching. Uh, and uh, from unapproved uh, apparition sites, unapproved visionaries, unapproved series. So this kind of stuff is just unhealthy. So in regards to what Faustina says, now, now remember, Pope Benedict says that her diary, wherein she mentions the, dar- the Three Days of Darkness, is one of the greatest works of mystical literature in the 2,000-year history of the Church. But remember, if Scripture itself has four categories of interpretation under two parent categories, the literal and the spiritual uh, interpretation of Scripture, and under the spiritual we have moral, allegorical, and anagogical, if we hold those four interpretation categories for the highest level of the revealed divine Word of God, 
then why can't they also apply to private revelation, which is not needed for salvation, like the writings found in St. Faustina's diary? In other words, the three days of darkness uh, maybe isn't meant to be taken literal in Faustina's diary. Maybe it's meant to be taken as a call to urgency to reform your life in the here and now. Again, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of the Lord. So great question about that very thing. Thank you so much for it. And once again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes as we talk as we do every Tuesday, faith, family, and fellowship. If you would like to be poor, uh, part of a future mailbag program, simply send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. The man speaks the truth. We're emptying out the mailbag today. Milton writes in, and I think this is uh, in reference to a comment that was made by our Holy Father during the height of the pandemic, Father Wade. He says, recently Pope Francis said that if people were unable to go to confession, they can tell God their sins, say an act of contrition, promise God they will go to confession at a later time and ask for his forgiveness. He said, if we did all this, we would be in a state of grace. If we did this, would we have to confess what we confess to God in private to the priest when we do go to confession? Yeah, great question about the time of pandemic, but I, it's also a great question in this sense, Jack. It, it gives me the opportunity to remind everybody that whenever we fall into mortal sin, and we know it, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of the will, whenever we have fallen to sin mortally and have committed the act, we should immediately make an act of contrition, ASAP, before we even get to the confessional. Because how do we know we're not going to die suddenly, say a heart attack or uh, in a car accident, before we have the chance to get to confession at the most uh, earliest time that is reasonable, right? So whenever one falls into mortal sin, uh, one should make an act of contrition immediately, okay? And, and still go to confession, because confession remains the ordinary way for mortal sins to be forgiven. What Pope Francis was talking about here, exactly as you, as you intimated, Jack, was during the time of pandemic, if one is unable, completely unable, to get to confession, no priest is available. One can make an act of perfect contrition, as opposed to an act of imperfect contrition. An act of perfect contrition is when we're mostly sorry for our sins, especially mortal sin, because most of all they have offended God, and secondarily because they threaten us with a certain punishment, temporal punishment if venial sin, uh, in purgatory or on earth, and eternal punishment in hell if mortal sin. An imperfect act of contrition is an act of contrition where we're mostly sorry because of the punishment, eternal or temporal, that our sins threaten us with, and then secondarily because they 
have offended God. Well, it should be the other way around. We always want to make a perfect act of, act of contrition, uh, most of all because they've offended God. And in fact, in the traditional act of contrition prayer, we hear that echoed, right? Um, and I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. But most of all, because they have offended thee, my God, who are all good and deserving of all of my love. See, that's, that's the statement of perfect contrition there, because we're sorry for our sins mostly because they have offended God. Now, you're not able to go to confession because it's a time of pandemic. There's no priest available. You make that act of perfect contrition. Uh, you, you can then continue to make your spiritual communions, of course, receive Holy Communion, but as soon as you're able to go to confession, uh, let's, let's get to confession as soon as possible to confess those mortal sins that you know you have yet to confess sacramentally. You're still bound to confess them sacramentally. So you still want to make, uh, uh, maybe make a list of them, a private list of them, remember them in your mind so that when you finally can get back to confession sacramentally, an actual sacramental confession, where you go to the priest face-to-face or behind the screen, you can confess any known mortal sins that have not yet been confessed sacramentally in confession, because again, that's the ordinary way that mortal sins are forgiven. Great question. Thank you so much. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, not taking your phone calls today. Debbie writes in, Dear Father Wade, during a Bible study on the Mass, our deacon taught that during the Epiclesis, the heavens are opened and we are surrounded by angels and all those in heaven. He also stated that there also present are all those progeny yet to be born in the future. Would you please comment on that for me? Thank you, and thank you for your vocation. Okay, great question. I've never heard that about the progeny. I mean, in God's divine mind, he knows all things. He knows all yet the people to be born, those yet not born, etc. He knows the married couples that are at that mass in that particular pew, let's say, who have yet to conceive a child, that God knows what children they will be conceiving. So in that sense, they're present in God's divine mind, but the, the progeny not yet created, I've, I've never heard that, that in a winsome way that they're present at that Mass, other than God's own divine mind. Uh, the angels are always present at Mass. We could say what that priest probably meant is that at the Epiclesis, which is the calling down of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's been called down during the offertory of those gifts during that portion of the Eucharistic prayer, uh, the offertory was before, followed by the Eucharistic prayer, and the Epiclesis takes place within the Eucharistic prayer. It's, it's when the priest opens both hands and lays them over the gifts. This is before the two consecrations of the bread and wine, the bread into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ. So the Epiclesis takes place before the two consecrations. And that is literally a calling down in the Greek, epiklesis, a calling down. A calling down of what? Of the Holy Spirit to come upon these gifts and make them worthy to be sacramentally offered in an unbloody fashion to the Father, representing, meaning making present again, the one singular sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, which was done in a bloody manner, the Mass makes present again in an unbloody manner. Uh, and, and so we can say that, that through this calling down of the Holy Spirit, uh, more of the mysteries are revealed at that moment of the Mass, just prior to the consecrations with the Epiclesis. But I would say the angels are present as soon as the Mass begins. 
In fact, last week on July 19th, we talked about this very thing, that the, that the angels are present from the beginning of Mass till the end. So great, great statement and a great uh, uh, statement of, of reality, of the, of the unseen. Huh? There's a, a couple of professional YouTube videos done on YouTube on the Mass of the unseen realities of the Mass, where because of, uh, what is it, Jack... Um, CGI, I think they call it computer-generated imagery. That's right. They're trying to give a. They're trying to give an an image of of the myriad of angels present at the mass, and it's done very beautifully. Uh, one is done not so well. I like the other one better. But there's a few out there where they try to reveal the unseen realities, the unseen realities spiritually, what's taking place at every mass. Uh, great statement of, of of truth. Thank you so much. Again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today, but we do need your help getting the word out in your parish communities about EWTN. We'll give you all of the material and all of the training that you need. If you'd be interested in helping us in this undertaking, simply log on to EWTNmissionaries.com, and you can learn everything you need to know about becoming an EWTN media missionary. Um, here's a really good email, or, or it's, it's, it's a very sincere email from a couple that needs some help. Father Menezes, we would like to somehow find an answer to the question below as it has caused a family rift. Our granddaughter and her fiancé just entered the faith last Easter vigil. My husband and I were their sponsors. Two weeks ago, they were married in a Catholic church with a nuptial mass. Last weekend, they were married again at the reception location by the bride's aunt, who supposedly is an Assemblies of God minister. The ceremony included walking down the aisle, exchanging rings, reading vows, etc. Since we were not in attendance purposely, we, uh, as we were there for the reception only, we don't know exactly what prayers were said by the minister who had stated publicly that she was marrying them. Since my husband and I did not attend, this has caused a family rift. We really need some direction on this matter. Can the same two people be married twice in one week? Does can, uh, does uh, Canon 1127 apply here? We look forward to your response. God bless Anthony and Carolyn. Great question. Well, first of all, uh, rest assured that they did receive the sacrament in the Catholic Church. It sounds like the way the way you described it. Um, they did receive the sacrament, so that's that's great. Uh, getting married in the Assembly of God, uh, following that later on in that same week, uh, I think, is dangerous because it sends uh, a message to all who attended the Assemblies of God that they, the young couple, are not that solidified in their Catholic faith. It sounds like they probably did the Assemblies of God, quote-unquote, wedding ceremony, uh, non-sacramental, um, because the, the, the so-called Assemblies of God minister was, was aunt to one of them, whether the bride or the groom, I forget which. Um, and so it's, it was done for an appeasement factor. Well, you know, our, our Lord makes it clear, you know, there, there's the fullness of truth, and when you get married in the Catholic Church, you have that fullness of truth in the sacrament of matrimony. And to go and get married in a Protestant ceremony at any time, let alone the same week so soon after the Catholic Mass and ritual, even if it wasn't a Catholic Mass, it was just the sacrament of matrimony ritual, which couples have the ability to do, uh, but it's still a sacrament, but it's outside the Mass. Uh, it's still unwise to get married in any Protestant faith or non-Christian faith after that, because it looks like 
a you you aren't really solidified in your Catholic faith. You weren't that concerned about it. Uh, you just went through through uh, uh, you just went through the motions of it all, and you see uh, everybody is equal. A type of syncretism between faiths, which is a heresy. So there's a problem there. Um, you know, uh, I would strongly advise against that. Now, this couple that's asking the question, I think, was wise in not going. Uh, that was their choice, and I would agree with them in that, because it could be showing that the Catholic relatives that go to the Assemblies of God ceremony are showing the types of syncretism as well. Uh, and I just don't think that's healthy. In a day and age when natural marriage is so attacked, when are we going to finally stand up for sacramental natural marriage as a covenant uh, between one man and one woman for life? That's the question here is that we have to ask ourselves as Catholics who believe in the fullness of truth of the Bride of Christ— uh, which we know by her four marks, one holy Catholic and apostolic. And, and, and so I, I commend this couple that wrote in the question here for not going. I think that's great. Um, as far as canon law number 1127 goes, uh, I'm not a canon lawyer uh, in particular, uh, and surely not in marriage generally, um, so I, I really don't know that too much about the different canons. I'd have to research that. I don't know what, what number 1127 says. I'm trying to look it up here quickly uh, for the for this section. It says, um, the prescripts of canon 1108, this is 1127 that I'm reading, the prescripts of canon 1108, so you got to go back to 1108 to see what, what it says, uh, are to be observed from the foreign to be used in a mixed marriage. Now, see, this is talking about mixed marriage, but I understand from our original questioners, Jack, that both entered the Catholic right, faith. Right, And so they're both Catholic. Yeah, so it I, I doesn't look like 1127 applies, because 1127 is about when, the, when one spouse is Catholic and the other is not, and they enter into a mixed marriage. Um, that's a whole different case here. We're talking about a case by the original questioners where both are Catholic and both entered the Catholic faith as catechumens and now are fully Catholic. I just think it's a dangerous precedent to set in a family because other relatives are going to do it, and it's, it, it, it sends out uh, uh, confusion. It, it causes great confusion. I would just advise against it. Uh, we have a question from Maria. She says, Hello, EWTN. Question for you. A priest left a cruet with wine on the altar. He then consecrated the wine in the chalice and cups into the precious blood of Jesus. Was the wine in the cruet consecrated also if it was covered with a lid? Please help me. I thought everything on top of the altar becomes consecrated when Jesus' holy words are said by the priest. Thanks for your response. Keep up the good work. Maria. No, not everything on the altar is changed into the body and blood of Christ, meaning the bread and wine elements that are placed on the altar. Only those that the priest celebrant has the intention of consecrating, and a priest would not have the intention of consecrating the wine that's still in the cruet following the offertory, where he took some of that wine in the cruet and poured it into the chalice. His intention would, or chalices, if there's cups for the congregation, he would have only the intention of consecrating what's in his primary chalice as the celebrant, and in the, the smaller chalices, or what are called cups, I, pro properly speaking, smaller chalices, that are meant for the congregation. He would not have the intention of consecrating um, uh, the wine that's left over in the cruet following the offertory portion of the Mass. So that wine in the cruet, left over in the cruet, would not be consecrated. Only the wine in the uh, chalices are. Uh, another thing to remember about this, it's not required, although it's 
nice when I see it done. I think it's good, and I do it. If you have multiple chalices or a chalice and, and cups for the congregation, uh, for the mixing of, the, of a little bit of water into the wine at the offertory, absolutely speaking, absolutely speaking, the, wa- the water only has to be put into the main celebrant's chalice. You do not need to add water to the cups. Although I think for the fullness of the sign of the com- mixing the water and wine, uh, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The priest says that in, in a low voice during that moment. Uh, I think the fuller sign of that is when he puts a little bit of water into each chalice, the congregational smaller chalices, as well as obviously his own chalice, larger one, which is required. Uh, another important, and the, the Vatican has answered that question. Uh, so I think it's better when it's done rather than when it's not done. But but it's but the other congregational chalices are still validly consecrated, even if no water is added to them. But the priest chalice needs water added to it. Something else here that Rome has answered that I thought was interesting when I remember first reading it many years ago when I was just ordained a couple years, um, is if the priest has the intention of consecrating bread on the credence table, which is aside from the altar top, what's called the mensa, M-E-N-S-A, the top of the altar. He has the intention of consecrating the host for the congregation that's still left on the credence table, then it is also consecrated because it's part of his intention. When do we see situations like this? Well, for example, when you have a very large papal mass and all the uh, deep dish patens or the ciborium uh, will not all fit on the altar for the consecration. So they're left on a beautifully decorated credence table near the altar. Because the priest has the intention of consecrating those ciboriums and those deep dish patents that are filled with hosts for the congregation, they are indeed consecrated because his intention covers that. So where the person asked, I thought that everything on the altar was automatically consecrated. No, that's not the case. It all evolves around intention. And in fact, things left off the altar, because there's so many of them, left on the credence table, if the intention is to consecrate them, they are likewise consecrated. So it works both ways. This is how important the intention of the priest is at the Mass, knowing precisely what it is he intends to consecrate. Great question. Thank you so much. Gary writes in, In an apparition to St. Catherine Laboray, The Blessed Mother said that there are graces being withheld because there are people who don't ask for them. Exactly what graces should we be asking for? Well, again, a a saint's writings are not immune from error, or a a better way of saying that is everything a saint writes is not automatically church doctrine. So that's the first thing I want to say about that, that particular passage from Catherine. The second thing I want to say about it is that common sensibly... Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is that all the graces necessary that are needed to be faithful to your vocation and state in life. Are you married? Then pray for the graces necessary to be a holy husband, a holy wife. Are you a mother or a father? Pray for the graces necessary to be a holy father, a holy, a holy mother. Are you a priest, diocesan or religious order, a nun, active or contemplative? Are you a consecrated single? Are you a single living in the world who's open to courtship? Then pray for the graces necessary for chaste courtship. I would say first and foremost, 
to pray for the graces necessary to be faithful to your vocation and state in life so that that vocation and state in life will help you to become a great, great saint, to live heroic virtue in this life, thereby attaining heaven, eternal beatitude, the beatific vision in the next life. All right, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your questions today. Get your uh, get your St. Joseph Terror of Demons uh, pen ready, Father Wade. Okay. Because we have a, a, a CCD teacher with three or four questions here, so you'll, you may want to make notes okay. as I read you this question. Um, this is Mariana, and she says, I help teach faith formation for third graders who are very smart. They ask me, why do we fold our hands when we pray? Also, are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do before and after communion? And should they be looking at the priest as he is consecrating, or should they put their heads down after communion as they pray or give thanks? Um, they also ask if Jesus kept all of our sins since he took them when he was on the cross uh, when we say he died for our sins. All right, Jack, I'm going to have you go through each one of those, <laughs> beginning with the first why do one we fold and, our and hands then when, stop. Why do we fold our hands when we pray? <laughs> it's a sign of piety. There's other signs of piety with our hands. For example, both hands held up, you know, uh, some of the charismatic uh, uh, participants in the charismatic movement. It's, it's a beautiful sign of, of praying to God with both hands raised. Uh, often you see, for example, in iStock photos on the internet, I put together uh, a, a, a parish mission brochure where I talked about addictions, saints who overcame issues, dependencies, and addictions. And you can often find, for example, the silhouette of the male or the female uh, on top of a mountain with the sun uh, in front of them, but they're blocking the sun, and they got both hands up in the air, showing that they're free of their chains, right? They're, they're free of the chains of addiction. Very beautiful, inspiring photographs available as public domain uh, pictures on iStock. So, so there's, a, there's a sign of piety with both hands up. But the, the hands folded is also a sign of piety, and it's the most popular one for the Catholic liturgy in the celebration of the Most Holy Eucharist, what we call the Mass. Um, there's also um, a sign of piety in the laying on of hands. So, for example, when there's a, a team of prayers, a prayer team for an exorcist who's been duly deputed by his bishop to perform an exorcism, uh, the wise exorcist will have a prayer team with him of three or four other people, um, and those people may lay one hand on the person who's receiving the exorcism. That's a sign of piety during this particular prayer. Signs of piety shown during times of prayer, whether they're liturgical or paraliturgical or non-liturgical, okay? Uh, and, and the folding of hands is just one of those, and we see that especially during the celebration of the Eucharist in the context of the Holy Mass. Uh, be sure to check out Catholic Answers Live tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, two hours of Q&A Open Forum, Hour 1, Tim Staples, and Hour 2, Jim Blackburn. They want to know what they do before and after communion, these third graders. Okay. Uh, before communion, uh, you want to be rekindling in your mind and heart the particular willed intention you made at that particular Mass when you first arrived at Mass just before it began. The whole purpose of arriving in the pew a little early is to have some private prayer time to prepare your mind and heart. Uh, your posture, your your body, uh, the, 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 your whole self uh, for the sacred liturgy that you're about to partake in. And during that time of quiet, just before Mass begins, when you're seated in the pew and you do those preparatory prayers, 
whatever those might be. There's no set prayers uh, for the preparation of Mass uh, for the laity. Uh, you also want to rekindle in mind and heart that particular willed intention that you want to unite with the pre-celebrant's primary intentions. That's before Mass, before Holy Communion. And then at, at the time of Holy Communion, rekindle that intention you made at the beginning of Mass. Uh, this is why the priest is able to say, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. You brought a sacrifice to that Mass, that is a particular willed intention, or intentions in the plural, uh, that you offer through your baptismal priesthood in union with the pre-celebrant's ministerial priesthood. Both priesthoods are different in kind, but they do share in the threefold office of, of, of priest, prophet, and king that our Lord uh, made possible. Uh, through the ministerial priesthood and the, and the baptismal priesthood. Um, so that's what you want to do before Mass begins, and then just before you receive Holy Communion, is, is make and rekindle that particular willed intention. Should they be looking at the priest when he's consecrating, or should they put their heads down? That's great. Great question. Uh, there's no set rubric on that for the laity, but it does say this. When the priest, after the words of consecration, uh, this is my body, this is my blood, he elevates the sacred species to show the people. Now, if he's doing that to show the people, it makes sense that we would gaze upon it then, gaze upon the consecrated host, gaze upon the chalice that has the precious blood inside of it, because he's called to elevate both sacred species after each one in particular is consecrated to show it to the people. Uh, that's what the rubric says for him, the celebrant. So it would make sense then that the people would, would look upon it and gaze upon it. Now, out of piety, they can choose to not look upon it, but it would be wise if they would. This is what Vatican II meant about actual participation, active participation in the Mass. It doesn't mean holding your hands and throwing them up and flailing them during the Our Father, because that's foreign to the Roman Rite. What's not foreign to the Roman Rite is looking upon the sacred species when it's elevated, so it would make sense to do so. Now, during the consecration itself, you don't have to look at the priest. Uh, during the actual words of consecration, you can be looking down, you can have your eyes closed, or you can look at the priest. Again, it's your choice. But at the actual elevation, the mind of Holy Mother Church for the Mass and her liturgy is to look upon the sacred species that was just consecrated. And very quickly, after communion, are they to pray or give thanks? Both. Make your prayer a prayer of thanksgiving, which is what the word Eucharist actually means in the Greek. Tell a Eucharistia. Tell us everything we ever wanted to know about the Fathers of Mercy. The Fathers of Mercy are itinerant missionary preachers based in Auburn, Kentucky. We preach parish missions, retreats, and devotions throughout the United States, Canada, and Australia, and other selected countries where we're called. If you feel you might have a call to the priesthood or consecrated religious life as a permanent deacon or priest with a missionary preaching apostolate, look at fathersofmercy.com and email our vocation director at vocations at fathersofmercy.com, Father Ken Geraci. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>